okay? So I'm going to give you an example of how this works, and then we'll talk about a practical way that we've done this in two ways at Edgewater. So the, the example I'll use is from the book of Genesis since we've been studying, and I'll ask you this question. Who crushed the serpent's head? Who says it's Jesus? Raise your hand. So you have Genesis 3.15, and it says this. It's God now speaking to Eve after Adam and Eve have eaten of the forbidden fruit. And he's now laying out, here's what's going to happen. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, right? It's called the first mention of the gospel, the proto-evangelium. You're going to bite essentially his heel, but he's going to crush your head, right? So that would make you think, okay, it's Jesus. So when would that happen? When did Jesus crush the serpent's head? On the cross, right? So is Satan dead? No. Okay. So now... If you want, you can look at Romans 16, verse 20. I'll back up a couple of verses, verse 17. This is his closing. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Who crushes Satan's head? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Who crushes Satan's head? Right? Okay, so here's the theology. Those two texts, and there's a whole bunch more. You have Revelation 12, that when you read that text, it, it talks about the dragon. And then John ties it all together. He says, this dragon, who's the ancient serpent, also known as the devil, also known as Satan. So John ties it all together. Just in case you didn't know this, the serpent in the garden is the devil, right? So the last book just says... If you haven't figured this out by now, I'm just going to spell it out for you. The dragon is Satan, who's the devil. Okay, there it is. So, who crushes Satan's head? Jesus. But then Romans 8, 20, or 16, verse 20, God will crush Satan's head under your feet, Church of Rome. All right, so the theology is this. It's called inaugurated eschatology. It's a fancy word that means he began the end. So Jesus is the one that inaugurates, eschatology just means the end of things. He inaugurates it. He launched the kingdom, if you would. He launched the defeat. The kingdom will come. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus launched that. So here's the analogy I use all the time. In World War II, if you're a historian, there is one decisive battle that historians look back on and they say, this battle spelled the demise of the Third Reich, of the Nazis, of that evil, evil regime. What was that battle? Normandy. When the beaches of Normandy were taken by the allied forces, it was, it was done, right? It was over, essentially. Did World War II end that day? 
No, it went for 18, well, almost two more years. Some of the most bloody, brutal battles happened after Normandy as the, that, that evil was contained and pushed and centered finally into Berlin and then extinguished, right? So that's exactly to me what happened. Our Normandy was Calvary 2,000 years ago. The writing's on the wall, Colossians 2.15, right? He's triumphed over them. However, however, he's a defeated enemy, but he's not dead. And he continues to lash out and fight. And then we get to, if you would, join in with Jesus in this. So that's why the New Testament, even after, if you would, Calvary continues to say, you're in a battle, right? Ephesians chapter six. Isn't that what it's all about? Hey, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual weakness in high places. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God. Why do you need armor on if there's no battle? You don't, right? Armor up. Paul talks to Timothy and says this in 2 Timothy chapters, chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. He says, man, be like a good soldier. Don't get entwined in the stuff of the world, but keep on pleasing the one that enlisted you the one that grabbed you, the one that brought you into his army. Keep pleasing him, right? I can go on and on and on with these verses that there's still a battle. So inaugurated eschatology says this, Jesus started it, did the decisive battle. But you and I now, Romans chapter 16, verse 20, Ephesians chapter six, 2 Timothy chapter two, on and on and on. We, we are still part of that battle. The battle still rages on. So the philosophy, then you have that theology. Okay, I see that, inaugurated eschatology. Jesus did, he had the decisive victory, but we continue to partner with him. So then your philosophy would look like this. This is, what, this is the way that I put it. Since that, our philosophy is Edgewater Christian Fellowship, a church in Grants Pass, joins in with Jesus in the battle against evil in our community. So a couple of weeks ago, I said, when there's a plague, when there's evil, the believers should be running to it because we're the ones equipped to take it out. We're the ones that have the armor on. We're the ones that stand behind our general in victory. So we run to plagues, not worried about them. That's, that's what we do. We're like the white hats in Syria. Who knows? Who's heard about the white hats in Syria? You've got to Google them. They're unbelievable. So Syria right now is just a absolute train wreck. And what happens is around that country, their government will bomb their own people and do really bad things to their own people. So what do you do when your own government's doing that? Are the police gonna respond who are paid by the government? Are the ambulance gonna respond? No. So these group of people said, that's it. And they put on these white hats and when there's a bombing, just regular citizens quit their jobs, get in their cars and they drive to these areas that have been bombed and they go in and they rescue. There's a documentary on it. It's brilliant. That's who we're like. Man, when, there, when we see a evil thing happen, we don our white hats and we said, we're equipped to do this. We're running to those things. So, so that's our philosophy. So the methods are, okay, then how do you actually walk this out? So we say as Edgewater, safe families, foster care, J Street, we pray, we eat healthy. We gotta be healthy. And when I say we eat healthy, it's man, God's word because God's word is like an armor, the helmet of salvation. We keep learning about what Jesus has done to us in salvation, and it just equips us and enables us. We take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Like That's our one offensive weapon is God's word. We pray always, Ephesians tells us. So when we go indoors, we do something that I've been to a lot of churches. I've never been to a church that does what we do on a Sunday morning, where we shut down, and we say, we're going to take a space of time and we're going to pray corporately as a body for the needs of the body. And it's because I go back to, hey, we're in a battle. And the way that we wage this battle is not weapons that are carnal, but spiritual weapons. And one of our weapons is prayer. So why would we not give time in our corporate setting to pray? So we pray every single week. Okay? So do you see how that happens? You get a theology that leads to a philosophy, that then leads to a methodology. Does that make sense? So that's what I'm always trying to do. I'm always trying to rethink. And it, it, to me, it's amazing how there's these long shadows from history, the church history, that really cloud how you see the Bible. 
There's a lot of presuppositions that we bring to the Bible. So I keep trying to come back to know what does the Bible actually say, all right? So the example is um, like, like what's a church supposed to be? So for two years, as elders, we discussed what is Edgewater? And we'd go back and forth. And what, what are we about if we were just kind of, if I was going to give the methodology of what we're about to somebody simply, how would I do that? So as elders, we just, we ran this around, 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 around. There was a Sunday that I wasn't teaching. So I just took a day essentially and just sat down and tried to get all the notes that we had and, and formulate what, what does this look like? And we came up with four pillars. And the four pillars, we have a, a video of it. A, a seat, there it is right there. Okay. So the, the, if you're going to boil it down, okay, we have, and I could do the theology and the philosophy. I, I don't have time for that. When we boil it down, these are the methods that we believe encapsulate what a body is supposed to be about. So number one is corporate worship. And we have a verse from Acts there where the church all got together when Paul came home and they just talked about the great things God had done, right? And Paul's an Old Testament scholar. He'd have been throwing out scripture. Awesome, awesome. So, so, so that's number one. We get together Sundays. Wednesdays, other times, corporately, and we worship. When, when most people think about worship, they think about singing songs. That's praise. Worship is a lifestyle. So we come together and demonstrate just a little tangible, hey, this is the lifestyle of the believer. Studying scripture, loving one another, praying, those kind of things, having fellowship, knowing each other. It's just like a little microcosm of what everything else is supposed to be. So that's corporate worship. Number two, and that is, you could say, loving God as well. Number two is community. That we're not supposed to be islands. We're supposed to be connected together. The two great commands of Jesus are love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? So that's number two, community. You need to be around a group of people that keep you accountable, but even more than that, that love you and walk with you and care about you. When, when good things happen to celebrate and when bad things happen to, to Galatians 6.1, bear that burden with you, all right? So number two is community. Number three, we feel like celebration is something that maybe Christians don't do enough of. We serve the general who crushed Satan's head at Normandy. How can you not get excited about that? How can you not celebrate that? How can you, who has it better than us, Right? Who has it better than the believer in this world and in the one to come? So we should be demonstrating in our neighborhoods, in the park, wherever we're at, a joyful, rejoicing, celebrating spirit. And then lastly, mission. That we're called to do something, join in with Jesus to push back and push evil back out of the city of Grants Pass, out of my family, out of myself, right? I partner in that work. So mission, we should all have mission. Somehow, God has called you and me to a mission at your home, in your job, wherever you're at, we're gonna be on mission. And so our community groups actually go along this same model. If you're in a community group, you're all supposed to be on a mission, all right? So th that, that's driven that, all right? That's the first example. The second example is we do communion maybe differently than any church I've been into. I've never been in a church that does communion like us. And probably the longest email chains I've had in a long time have been on, why do you guys do communion like that? So when we're inside, have you noticed that we do communion probably differently than other people do? So there is a long tradition of what's called fencing the table. Is anyone familiar with that term? Fencing the table. It's actually a theological term. And what it means, I personally think it's a holdover after the Reformation as the Reformers moved out of the Catholic Church. The Catholics are really, really tight about communion, aren't they? Yeah. Like, you've got to be Catholic to take communion. In the it doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you love Jesus. Are you Catholic, right? So they have, it's a closed fence table. You cannot take communion unless you are in good standing with the Catholic Church. It's called fencing the table. We're going to fence this. So that way, the priests are the one that administer it because they can know, hey, I've never seen you here before. Are you Catholic? Well, no, I'm not. Well, get out of here, right? So they're the ones, they are then guarding the table. 
Well, that kind of holds over to me, I think, and people would argue against that. Um, I think it holds over through the Reformation. And so they do the same thing, that, you, that we, we still have to kind of guard the table. And now we're going to put elders out there, and it's the elders that are going to administer the elements so that the elders can then, hey, uh, um, your wife told me something about you. Is that true? It is? No communion for you, right? Same idea almost. So um, my struggle with that is, okay, where's that in the Bible? So let me give you the theology that has driven our philosophy and the methods that we do communion by. Number one is this. And if you get nothing else, get this. Number one is this. Please get this. If you get nothing else, get this one. The Lord's Supper is about Jesus, not about the recipients. Does that make sense? Okay. The Lord's Supper is about Jesus, not about the recipients. When Jesus breaks the bread, gives it to his disciples in Luke 22, he says, take, eat, do this in remembrance of your sins. Do this in remembrance that you're worthy. Do this in remembrance that you've confessed correctly. What does he say? In remembrance of me. To me, that drives communion. If communion is about me and my worthiness or my unworthiness, my confession or my lack of confession, I just missed the whole picture because Jesus says, when you take communion, what you should remember and what you should think about is me. If I'm worried that I'm stupid and an idiot and I blew it last week and I can't believe what a moron I am, my focus is on the wrong thing because I should be remembering Jesus, okay? That, that to me was a watershed moment when I really, really began to think that through, that the, the methods that, that the, the fencing of the table do is now they take the focus off of Jesus and they really bring it down to me now. And fundamentally, I say, that's wrong. That's wrong. So that, that's number one. Number two, 1 Corinthians 11 is the passage where most people turn to that say, you got to fence the table. Because some people are eating or drinking unworthily and they drink damnation to themselves. Do you guys know that text? Okay. Read that text very carefully. Go back to verse 17, where Paul begins the problem. The problem is not how they were taking the elements. The problem was that when they were eating the Lord's Supper, it was an agape feast. And some of them were feasting at the same table while the poor people were starving. And Paul said, are you, he, he just, in my translation, he just says, what? What? You have a house to do that in. Don't do that in church, right? So you have all these important texts in there that are, you're supposed to, you're supposed to, you're doing disservice to the body. There's all these terms in there. And the whole idea is this. When it says, and I'll read it for you. So context drives everything. So it says, verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Anyone who eats or drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does it mean to be unworthy then or not discerning the body? It's back to the problem that was happening there where the rich people were feasting and the poor people were starving. You're forgetting what Jesus did on the cross. You're forgetting the work that he did in creating one new body, Ephesians chapter two. He's forgetting that there's, now no, there's not Jew and there's not Gentile. There's not rich and there's not poor. There's not male and there's not female. You're forgetting the body, what the body is. And because you're doing that, that's the problem, right? That's the core issue there. It's not, oh, did I confess all my sins correctly? What? That, that is not at all what's being discussed in that text. And so I think that theology is wrong. Personally, I'm welcome to change, whatever. Okay, number three, I'm not a systematic theologian anymore. I like that system. I've learned a lot from it, but I use biblical theology probably to drive most of what I do. So 
Systematic theology does this. It grabs a bunch of like similar texts, compiles them and says, here's what we believe. Biblical theology does this. Let's read the Bible like it's been given to us, Genesis to Revelation, and let's see if there's some long lines that actually go across the entire scripture. Because if God is giving us, I don't think God is complicated. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that really positively. That the big things, the main things are the main things. And God's gonna make them the main things. Genesis 3.15, there's coming one who will crush the serpent, right? That's on page two. Good news, there's coming one. And we, we know it's Jesus, all right? So the main things are gonna be all the way across scripture. So that's biblical theology. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper on what day? Passover, right? He's building on the most important day in the biblical calendar, Passover, when people were set free from a tyrant named Pharaoh and God trashes him in the Red Sea. It's just exactly what Jesus does to Satan. I mean, it's a perfect picture, all right? So Jesus isn't acting like, you know, inventing something new. He's grabbing and building on the story of Israel in fulfillment of it, okay? So if you read the story of Passover, here's what you find. Did everyone who was saved in Passover, were they all believers? Yes or no? Who says yes, they're all believers? Okay, good. Well, I'm done with that one. (laughs) Okay, we know a bunch of people, there's a mixed multitude that come out. There's Korah, Dathan, and Abiram that come out. There, there's, a, there, there's a crew that does, do, they just don't believe in the power of God and they die in the wilderness, right? So you, you can look at Romans 9 for this. Not all that are of Israel are Israel. Galatians chapter three talks about it. But here's the key one. Jude, for me. So Jude 5 says this. Now I want to remind you, though you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, when did that happen? Passover. Afterwards, destroyed those who did not believe, right? Jesus saves them all, gives them opportunity. Hey, you want to believe in me? No, I don't want to. I'm going to show you more and more signs. No, I don't want to. I'm going to show you more and more signs. No, I don't want to. I'm going to show you more and more signs. No, I don't want to. Okay, fine. You're done. So that text clearly says they got saved in Passover. They were never believers in Yahweh. In the end, they wouldn't believe in Yahweh. So the fence of the table is always, we got to look out. Unbelievers might take Passover. Look out. Well, or I should say the Lord's Supper. The fence of the table is, what if an unbeliever takes it? Well, Jesus builds on Passover where we know, Jude 6, other texts, that unbelievers enjoyed Passover but never believed, Right? And then I even go back to when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Were the believers worthy there? We're told that they were arguing about who was the greatest. That was the first problem. Number two, one of them is going to deny Jesus three times. Another one, Luke tells us that Judas was there. One of them is going to betray him. And Jesus did not withhold the body and bread from even Judas, to which to me is like, what? He should have. It doesn't, all right? On top of that, I see philosophically, I I call it the Lord's Supper, I prefer that, because to me, communion is, hey, do you wanna have a meal with Jesus? Do you wanna have a meal with Jesus? Come have a meal with Jesus. And we look throughout the gospels, who is Jesus having meals with? The perfect Pharisees? Well, he did on occasions. But more often, he was drinking with tax collectors and drunkards and prostitutes come have a meal with Jesus. So all those things combined to me says, you know what? You explain what communion is or the Lord's Supper. And then you say, if you want to have a meal with Jesus, come have a meal with Jesus. And then I leave it to the individual to make that choice, right? So once you stop fencing the table, then it gives you, to me, a lot of freedom. And the freedom is, well, We don't have to have elders guarding the table anymore, so why not just have the body, the priesthood of a believer, why not just have the body serve the body then? Because there's no text that says, I haven't found it yet, that says when you 
pass out communion or when you do communion, make sure it is somebody who is of the official, you know, on-staff person at the church. I haven't found that yet. In fact, I found the opposite of that, that you and I are each in the same position when it comes to ministry. And why not demonstrate that in our corporate worship? Hey, you can serve Jesus as well as anyone else. Come up here and pass out communion. And I've talked to people that have said, that was the biggest blessing of my day. Just to be able to be, to be, to be um, trusted, to pick up a plate and to hand this out to people. And to, oh, thank you, Matt. Because that's the way God wants us to be. Servants of our most high king. All right? So that, that, that's the same. A method drove a philosophy which drives the, excuse me, our theology drove a, drove a philosophy that then gives us these methods that we do things differently. And on both of those ideas, the, the four pillars and communion, I'm not saying this is the only way. I'm just saying this is where we're at right now. And I'm constantly trying to look at scripture and try to get rid of the shadow of church history because church history is good and bad. You can learn from it, but also you can be like, ah, oh, wh- why do we do that? And I always want to keep asking that question. Why do we do that? Where is the Bible verse? Where's the text that tells me this is the way you have to do it? Because if I can find it, man, I want to totally do it that way. But if I can't, then I think Jesus has given us freedom. And then you start taking the bigger picture of what's important. Oh, let's have the body serve the body. Oh, let's make sure that people are able to come in and have a meal with Jesus because that might be the thing that transforms their life because there's power in communion, all right? So I went longer than I wanted to. If you have questions, now would be your opportunity. If you have a question written down, you can hold it up or pass it in. Uh, If you want to ask a question with a microphone, raise your hand. Um, I'll dialogue with you and... We can go from there. If you want to pass your questions, you can pass them this way and we'll pick them up. If there are no questions, then we'll dive into the book of Deuteronomy. (laughs) And it will be awesome. Yeah, you got one? Yeah, I do. Sure. Okay. Um, when one is baptized, okay. and they put on the jersey, yes. mm-hmm. and there's increased spiritual battles, Yes. what does one do? Okay. So the question was this. You get baptized, and you put on the jersey, is the way that I explain it. You get off the bench, you identify as part of the body of Christ, and then all of a sudden you're on the field, so guess what? You're going to be knocked around. And I think you see that model with Jesus. Jesus gets baptized in Matthew chapter 6. The heavens open. God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Chapter 4 is what? The temptation of Jesus. He's driven by the Spirit into the desert, fast for 40 days, and the tempter comes to him and tempts him three times. When? Immediately following his baptism. I just say you have to expect it. Now you've, you've identified, you're no longer going with the flow of the culture in this world. You're now saying, now I'm on team Jesus. So what could I do to help show that type of Yeah, so Jesus does three things there. Number one, three times he says, it is written. I'm standing on God's word. It's food for us. So he's, he's I believe, He'd been reading the scroll of Deuteronomy at some point and just meditating because De- they're all out of Deuteronomy. He was just in God's word because it's food. It is written, it is written, it is written. And then number two, he rebukes the enemy. Get away from me. You don't have any part of me. I'm in a different kingdom. I don't belong to your kingdom anymore, right? Wouldn't they have to choose that for themselves? Oh, totally. You have to. And then thirdly, it says angels came and ministered to him. Angels are messengers, I think angels can be angelic, but I also think the body can be an angel. You get around people that you can talk with and that can love you and that can say, oh, the same thing happened to me. Oh, totally, I know what you're talking about. I remember my daughter and my friend and how they came in and both of them, I'd see and then 
Yeah. Community, number two pillar, community. Yeah, you, we, we cannot stand alone. So we stand with Jesus and in his body. That's the way I put it. We stand with Jesus as our captain, but we're also in his body connected to those that help us and are ministering spirits back to us, the Bible calls us. Prayer, yeah, in community, just in, I, I can't stress that enough. So, in community, this thing, we're, we're, over and over the analogies are, we're a body, we're a body, we're one loaf, like one loaf is made of a bunch of little grains, right, that are ground together, you add some oil to it, and you cook it, that's what we are. Or a bunch of grains that get ground together. You, ah, man. Then God's spirit comes, collects us together. Then we get cooked in tribulation. And then we're this beautiful loaf that's delicious and incredible. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So we'd love to plug you in a community group. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So when I look at missions, I look at Acts chapter two and Jesus's commission of his disciples, and he commissions them go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. So missions, I think, too often when you think of missions, we think of a guy going to Africa, and that's awesome and great. But just as valid of a mission is you going to your neighbor. That's just as valid in Jerusalem, right, in Grants Pass. So when I think about missions, I think about Grants Pass, Josephine County, Oregon, uttermost parts of the earth. So we are doing probably well locally. Um, we have safe families. We placed a couple kids last week with that. Um, my wife and I are involved in foster care. Um, uh, we, we saw, the, to me, the most beautiful thing in foster care I've seen now, and this is our third year in it, uh, Erwin Terrain, two rambunctious, crazy boys, uh, kind of moved from, from our home to uh, Matt and Maisha Langella, pray for them. I mean, that's a massive thing. They're looking at adopting them, and it's just beautiful, and, and it's gonna be messy, and all that stuff. We realize that, but they really have stepped out in, in saying, here I am, use me, local mission. Man, transforming the destiny of these kids. That if you look back, really, a track record, they're a bad photocopy of a bad photocopy of a bad photocopy. And Matt and Maisha are saying, we're gonna color that thing in. What God has done for us, we're going to add back in some contrast and some lines. And man, they're going to need help in prayer. So if you think about Matt and Maisha, just pray for them. Lord, give them patience and wisdom as they walk this out. So that was cool. We, we're getting two new ones on Friday, um, a three-year-old and a heroin-addicted baby. Yeah, newborn. So uh, that, that's going to be something. I had five newborns. And those were tough enough. And now, yeah. So here we go. Okay, Lord, you promise not to give me more than I can handle. This one seems right up there, but uh, I guess I'll trust you. So um, uh, my daughter, Gabrielle, started crying. She's like, this is, I've dreamed of this, Dad. I've dreamed. So it's like, so I want my kids to have mission. And when we do this, it gives my kids mission. They're like, that's what we're here for. Uh, so that's local. Um, my heart breaks that we're not more global. And uh, if I had 28 hours in a day, I'd spend those extra four hours. How do we do global missions better? And we, we need help on that. That's all there is to say. We support the folks' dads uh, in Africa. We could do a better job of that. 
Um, I keep wanting to get over there. Um, uh, Sean Logue and his wife went over there back in March and blessed them. We sent a guy that was at our J Street house, just a phenomenal man. His name is Daniel over there, but he's returning now. So we've tried to, but they're still out there a bit. If anyone wants to go to Africa, um, they would love to have you. So there's an open door there. Um, I think there's still great things we could be doing in India, but mm, uh, we support the mission in Carmen Serdan. Uh, that is, to me, James 127. They don't take a lot of our effort to help them. It's financial right now, and they need the finances, no doubt. Uh, it, it, we took a spring break trip there with high schoolers that I thought was one of my favorite mission trips ever, and I didn't think it'd be that way with high schoolers. So great group of high schoolers. They're just mature, and they threw in, and we dug rocks out of the ground for like eight, nine hours a day. So it was awesome, and they didn't give up. So th those are some things I'd love to see it expand. How to do that? I'm open to suggestions. So that's missions to me. Um, we're trying to put together a, kind of a think group for more like local and global missions where we get together maybe once a month and discuss these things. But we don't have a champion of that. So you kind of have to have somebody that it's like, they, they think and breathe missions, and that's the person we want. Okay, you think and breathe missions. Be our champion. Does that help? I hope so. Okay. Awesome. Next. <laughs> oh, okay, so... You can go up there, drive up there. Uh, they've dug a lot, and they're adding in. There was a soil sample, and it seemed like it was really good, and then it became too soft, and yeah. It's construction, right? Always over budget and longer than you expect. So they had to dig down and get out. They're like six feet down and get out some stuff and then bring in some rock that wasn't expected, but they can reuse the dirt. And Okay, so we have... Uh, we're essentially on phase four, when you look at it. We bought land, we built what we have. We bought more land, phase three, and now we're building probably three more phases or four more phases. I don't know what it is, but phase four, I call it. And this is dig out, put everything underground that you got to have, conduit for electricity and uh, uh, sewage and water and whatever, natural gas. So all that's coming in. All the underground stuff's done, going to be done, uh, formed up, pour a cement slab, build the, all the um, cinder block walls, or most of the cinder block walls, put up red iron, there's a two-story area, uh, put in some metal for that, pour a cement slab over that thing as well, and then we're out of money. So you'll see just this giant skeleton that we can go skateboarding in, <laughs> which we will. We will go skateboarding in it. And that's kind of where we'll be. Matt Hamilton will be skateboarding in there with all of his buddies. So that will be hopefully four months. They'll they'll, that'll be the conclusion of that. And then you'll hear me say, we're out of money. It's December. If you'd like a tax write-off, we'd love to help you right there. So that will be coming. <laughs> Does that help? Then we'll begin once we have the money. So each phase has kind of a price tag with it. Once we have the money or we're fairly close to it, fairly certain that we can make it, we'll kick off the next phase. At some point, we'll see about, you know, can the body jump in and help a bunch? I don't know if that's possible. Commercial building is, it's different than barn raising. an easy way. Hmm. So, I don't know if I have an easy way. Um, I will sometimes just say, do you ever look up in the stars at night and wonder, well, why are we here? 
Why are we here? So that's the way I'll start them sometimes. You say just probe a little bit. Just start, oh, okay. What don't you believe in? You don't believe. What don't you believe in? You believe in something. What do you believe in? Do you believe in science? So if they say, yeah, you know, I believe in science. Okay, let's talk science then. But if you want to talk science and they know their science, you better know your science, right? And a great field right now, if you want to, I just read um, um, Stephen Meyer's newest book. It's brilliant. It talks a bunch about the Cambrium explosion, which is unexplainable. So there was this massive, it's the Royal Society of England, not a bunch of Christians. The Royal Society of England met back in October, and they met, and they essentially said this, we know evolution is dead. Why are we still teaching it? You know what their answer was? We have no other viable option. That's the answer. You can go. These are not Christians. These are just, you know, this Jewish scientist, she's not a believer. Just, she presented just this so compelling of a case. You're like, duh, why? Well, we don't have a, we have to keep this safe so that something else doesn't slip in. And you know what that something else just might be, right? And one of the big things that they're just like, they cannot wrap their head around is what's called epigenetics. Has anybody heard of epigenetics? Okay, epigenetics, it's, epi just means over. There's like an overgenetic thing. And what they found is, I'm going so off topic right now. Okay, I'll be done in one minute. Epigenetics, it's, it's there is, the, what guides a cell to become your toenail versus your neuron in your brain, right? Well, they're finding like in the line of the cell wall, there's like, code in there and information in there. Like, what? What's it doing there? It's, it's, it's just crazy. Then they're finding this, that your epigenetics can change on the fly. That you're, it's not required like thousands of generations for something to change. Like literally inside of you right now, under the right conditions, those epigenetics turn on and they change who you are. Like it's, unbel- it's just unbelievable. Now, there's no mechanism by which that comes about. If you look at Darwinistic evolution. So that's when they're just like, listen, no one's known about this for a long time. We're learning about it. And it's just, the the whole thing's crumbling. What are we going to do? We've got to find a new system. But until we find that system, we will teach this faithfully, (laughs) even though we know it's wrong. It's fascinating. Okay. So you start up a conversation and if you don't know something, guess what you say? I don't know. But you know what? Let me ask somebody. I'll try to find out for you. That's the best thing you can ever do. When we start venturing into territory that we're not really good at, it gives a really funky name to believers. Like, ah, they don't have a clue. So I'll say to people, man, that is a brilliant question. Let me think about that a while. Can I get back to you? Can we have lunch? So to me, it's a walking with somebody. I don't think it happens overnight a lot of times with people that are not believers. And they're not a believer because they've bought into what's called naturalism. Everything occurred due natural processes without any divine oversight. I hope that helped. Okay, here's another one. From Luke 9. Um, Jesus said to, to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back. No one who, who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So the, the question then is, what, what, is, what does this mean? Is it Luke 9? I'm not finding it in Luke 9. Luke 9, 57, towards the end of that. Okay, Luke 9. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think there's uh, a cultural thing happening. Um, his dad is not sitting out somewhere. 
what you would do in that time is you would take your, the body and you'd put it immediately into a tomb because people decomposed really fast back then. And you'd wait for that body for one year for the flesh to rot off the body. Then you take the bones and you collect them, you put them in an ossuary box, and then you'd put that in your family tomb. So he's saying, give me a year. This isn't, hey, I'm gonna go do a funeral and I'll be back in an hour. This is, hey, give me a year off. Well, that's not the way the kingdom works. So Jesus is calling these people, and I think he calls us as well. You, you can only live today. You can't live on, hey, I'll do that tomorrow. I call it witty syndrome. When I, then I. When I, then I never works. Because when I, then I never comes. There will always be something that will distract you from being involved in the kingdom. And we have to become of the mindset that says, no, the kingdom is it, and everything else is a distraction. And that's what Jesus is calling them to. That's my opinion on it. And we're to be those the same, same thing. The kingdom is what lasts. Everything else is a distraction. Or seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? Anyways, sorry. So, context. Read the verse before and read the verse after. Verse three, trust in Yahweh and do good. Are you doing that right now? Okay, trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Are you doing those things? If I'm not doing those things, it's like the verse, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. Is that true? No. All things don't work together for good for Hitler, right? All things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's when you can say all things work together for good. Right? If I'm robbing and stealing people, I can't say, hey, it's all going to work out for good. No. Right? So you got to read the trust in the Lord, trusting Yahweh, do good, befriend faithfulness, be a faithful person, delight yourself in Yahweh, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Verse five, commit your way to Yahweh, trust in him and he will act. That's it. Don't need to say any more. That's what you're doing. You're saying, okay, I do have this desire. So right now, I'm going to be doing good. I'm going to be super faithful. I'm going to commit those things to Yahweh and trust him. And that's what you do. I hope that helps you. Okay. Here's a question. Um, there's two people lately that asked why there isn't speaking, any speaking in tongues. I don't know if that's just our church. Yeah. So I'll, that, that could be hours. You have 1 Corinthians 12 a little bit, 1 Corinthians 14 much more. Um, I think if you look at those texts, I think, this is me, what you find is that the right place to do tongues is in a community of believers that also wants to do tongues. So there, I don't have any problem with somebody speaking in tongues. I am charismatic, but I have a seatbelt on. So I'm not jumping out of my seat. I'm not rolling around on the ground. I, I'm not doing those things. But if I see it in scripture and I see it in the book of Acts and if I see it in the epistles, which you do, then I'm gonna say, okay, there's a place for that. Uh, I think chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians is putting the break on the expression of these things in the big corporate setting. So that's why we were not doing tongues in the big corporate setting. And if a group of people say, you know what, we want to wait on the Lord and we're going to go somewhere and, and we're, we're unified in this and we want to watch God work in this way, man, more power to you. 
but it's in that kind of statement. So if you read 1 Corinthians 14, come to a different conclusion, talk to me. That's where I'm at right now, though. I hope that helps. So there, there is a, how do I put this well? I think a lot of times in theology, there's a squishing of two things that happens, and then it breeds a lot of misunderstanding. And it is, number one, God's acceptance of us, and then number two, God's approval of us. God's acceptance of us is 100% based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that we are adopted, that we are brought into his family, that we're made inheritors, all because of the work of Jesus on the cross, right? But then Paul tells Timothy this, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, right? So you could use these terms, justification and sanctification. Same kind of idea in there. There's a lot of overlap in these ideas. So our acceptance is 100% Jesus Christ. I am brought in. I'm made a covenant member of his kingdom. All those things, instantly, dynamically, incredibly. But then if you continue to read the epistles, here's what you find. I think it's, I don't know what it is. I had the number once. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of imperatives. You know what an imperative is? It's a command. Do this, right? Why? Because of what happened to you. So the way that I put those two things together in my mind is this. We are to be driven by love. That once you realize that, that the drive is not, I'm trying to get something, it, it's my drive is I love my heavenly father so much. This is what I want to do. So with my wife, I use this example all the time. I pick up towels that are not mine and I put them away. And I don't do this, sweetie, I picked up a towel for you. Look it. No, I just do it because I'm driven by a love for her. So my love for my wife shapes the way that I walk out the day-to-day in my home. The same thing's supposed to happen because of the incredible grace that Jesus has given to us. It is supposed to now shape the way that we walk that out. And it's not, look, Jesus, I picked up a towel for you. It's, oh, I get to pick up a towel for Jesus. How awesome is this? So when you get that to me, it's, it's, it's like the smallest of distinctions. But when that clicks in a believer's mind, it changes everything. It's, yes, I get to pick up a towel for Jesus. It's the best day ever. Not, oh, great, Jesus wants me to pick up this towel. Man, I hate it. No. I hope that makes sense. So the Bema seat will be where what, how we've been shaped by his love we're rewarded for that shaping. And you can look at the parable, the talents for information on that. You know, I think those inform that very much. This, God gives them, you know, the master, Jesus gives them gifts. And how they use those, man, there's great rewards. Hey, good job. Rule over 10 cities. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Hey, good job. Rule, rule over four cities. Hey, good job. You know, hey, bad job. You didn't use your talent. So I think that's all being, that's all shaping what the Bema Seat judgment will look like. And what I love there, in both of those stories about the talents, anyone that did anything was rewarded. And I think Jesus says the same thing. If you give a cup of cold water to a child, you're gonna be rewarded. I don't think it's difficult to earn rewards from Jesus. I think he is an incredibly generous master king. And if we do anything for him, we're going to be rewarded in ways that we cannot believe. You're going to reward me for that? What? Really? I don't deserve... Yes. Yes, I'm going to reward you. Okay. Last one. Ooh, man, 
I should have stopped at the last question. <laughs> we're done. You know, on second thought, we're out of time. Um, I always begin by reading verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, are husbands going to be more responsible? Um, I don't know if I could make a clear case from Scripture, but you do see... God coming at husbands more than wives. So Sarah, we just studied her, she laughs at God's promise. And who does God talk to? Abraham, why did your wife laugh at me? He's like, why don't you talk to her, man? I'll call her in here right now, right? No. Moses, because his wife doesn't want to circumcise their boys, is pinned to the ground by God in Exodus chapter four. And God's gonna kill him because he didn't obey that command because his wife didn't want him to. So God holds Moses to a phenomenally high standard. So I think there is, there is a, um, with authority comes responsibility. And with that, there, I, you could maybe argue a case like that. But ultimately, um, I just think God looks at our hearts. And so we, ha- we have all this outward stuff and outward ways. God, just, God's going to look at my heart. Matt, were you loving your wife? Like, I love the church. Oh. Right? So, hmm, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. You might be able to make a kind of case for it, but... It takes two to make a brilliant marriage. It only takes one to make a bummer of a marriage. So if you're young, there's not a lot of you in here. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. Jesus, I do pray for marriages in here. I pray that husbands would love their wives like you love the church and you gave yourself for it. May husbands be giving themselves for their wives. May we not be dictators or hibernating bears demanding or running from responsibility. May we step up the way we're supposed to be stepping up as peacemakers, as protectors, as lovers, as generous, good men that are easy for our wives to listen to and submit to. I pray, Lord, for any marriage in here that might feel like it's rocky or broken. I pray that you would be that third cord that binds that relationship back together, that enables husbands to have that agape love, that enables that wife to be like Sarah, even when we're Abrahams doing boneheaded mistakes. So help us. May your spirit guide us. I pray, Lord, as we take the elements of communion tonight, I pray that you would bind us together, that we'd be one loaf, a bunch of bits ground up together, with your spirit and with tribulation, 
made into an incredible, beautiful loaf. So we even do that tonight, Lord, we pray. And I ask this in your name. Amen.